I think I've heard every single pronunciation. Emus, Amos, Emus, Emus. No, it's Emmaus. Oh, it's Emmaus Road? No, it's Road. Just kidding. They don't say that. Okay, just kidding. What is with this name, Emmaus Road? Why is our church called that name? I've been here for about 12 years in the valley. I'm not from Appleton originally, and I get to meet lots and lots of people. Aaron and I came here 12 years ago to plant a church, and this is what we've done, planted this church, Emmaus Road. And even now, things still surprise me about the valley, about how much people in the valley love Frisbee golf. I, I never knew people could love Frisbee golf so much, but they do. We live right by Pierce Park, where there's a Frisbee golf place, and people are always playing. Even when it's cold out, people are playing. Or people here in the Valley, their love for youth sports is insane. How someone can spend the whole day watching nine-year-olds play volleyball, uh, which is not very good volleyball. I'm coach. I'm not trying to bash nine-year-old volleyball, but it's not very good. But they'll stay the whole day to watch their nine-year-old play volleyball. The eclectic love of music in this town. That on Friday night, I can go to the Lawrence Chapel and hear Tchaikovsky, and then I can go on the bus during the mile of music and hear folk music, and then I can go to the, rock, the, the, um, the Fox River House and hear rock music. It's just so eclectic and people's love for music in this town. As I go around and meet people, find their passion, what makes them tick, and they ask maybe about who I am and what I do, and I tell them I'm a pastor, many of them find it very odd. What exactly are you doing? What does it mean to be a church planter? Why are you planting churches in a place with so many churches already? All these questions come up. And the truth is, most people don't come to me for really anything for my services other than people in the church. But there is an exception. The exception is weddings. People ask David and I to do weddings that are not a part of our church, outside of our church, maybe not gone to church in many, many times. And we're invited to be a part of one of the biggest days of their lives. And I tell them, if you want me to do their wedding, I'm going to do premarital counseling. So I sit down with them four to eight times and talk about life. And I go to their wedding and the reception. And it many times feels like I'm a part of a whole different world in a community that I have not always engaged with at times. And there at the wedding, I'm in front of them. And usually it's 1 Corinthians 13, talk about love and this amazing couple. But then I tell them this, there is a love that's even greater than this love that's on display today. I even said it here in this church with people not a part of this church, people that are not even Christians telling them that message. That's a question for us. As we walk around the Fox Valley, what would it look like for the risen Lord to be known? What would it like, be like for the risen Lord to be known on Houdini Plaza? At the Community First Championship Center, where all those sports are played? With your neighbors? 
in here, our own neighborhood, in this church? How about in your own life? What would it be like for the risen Lord to be known and lived out? How does the church, our church, fit into that story? Well, let's find out where our name comes from. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. Let's pay attention to God's word. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, in slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight, and they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The word of the Lord. When you're just joining us, this is kind of a one-off. I do this sermon on our name probably once every two, three years. Last time I preached it was three years ago. So if you heard it three years ago, I'm sorry. You're going to hear it again, but it's probably good that you know what we're all about as a church. But for the most part, what we're doing here in our church is going through the Word of God in larger chunks. In the fall, we go through the Old Testament. In the spring, the New Testament. And in the summer, we go through wisdom literature. And so 
this fall we're going to be going through the book of Daniel. But before we go through that book, I thought we would land here again on Luke 24 in our name, the Emmaus Road. Well, here we are, these two characters on Resurrection Day, traveling to this village, Emmaus, west of Jerusalem. And here they're walking, and we can see that they are sad. And here a third person comes along and walks with them. And this third person is wondering what has been going on in Jerusalem. And these gentlemen are kind of indignant that they don't realize, this person does not realize what has happened over these past few days. This person named Jesus and all that he has done. It's kind of like, are you living under a rock? Do you not understand what is happening? It would be kind of like saying, did you know that Jordan Love is starting next week? And you said, what? Aaron Rodgers isn't starting for the Packers next week? Everyone in Green Bay and Appleton in this area, we, we know what is going to happen next week. And maybe we'd want to explain to that person what's happening. And this is what they do. They answer the question, well, what did happen? I think this situation that we see is a lot like the Fox Valley. There is a great understanding of who Jesus is in the Fox Valley. When I have been in this area for a long time now, I realize that most people have been baptized at one point in their life. They've attended confirmation classes. They've been in a church. They've worshipped in a church. They've, many of them have been married in a church. It seems to just be this religious culture that permeates Appleton in the Fox Valley. What I find interesting, though, is what the statistics say about Wisconsin and the Fox Valley when it comes to faith. The Pew Charitable Trust a few years back labeled Wisconsin the fifth most irreligious state in all of the United States. There's some states in New England that are less religious, and I find that interesting. How can I see all this religiosity in the Fox Valley, but then the Pew Charitable Trust, a very reputable organization, says it's the fifth most irreligious state? Well, if you mind the data, they ask people these questions. Do you regularly attend a worship service? What is your frequency of prayer? What is the importance of faith? Do you believe in God? And what is your frequency of reading the Bible? Wisconsin, in answering each one of these questions, ranked in the bottom 10 of every state in the United States. While we might be knowing religion, we might live in religion, we don't live it out. While we can talk about faith and we're conversant in it, do people actually believe that it's true and does it have an effect upon their lives? When anxiety hits, where do they turn? When there's anger in the current political landscape we're in, who do they go to? Where is their money spent? What is their view on sexual ethics? When there is relational conflict in a family, where do they go? When they are struggling, who do they turn to? 
is this Christianity, is this Jesus real? I think this is the skepticism of these two men. Does Jesus have real authority? Did he actually come and do what he said he was going to do? We see here that these men are skeptics of this reality. And that really is some skepticism that we see here in the valley. Is Jesus really the way to God? Does he have influence in my life outside of Sunday mornings? See, it used to be in the United States, specifically in Wisconsin, that there was this cultural pull to faith. My grandparents go, my parents go, and because of that, I just flow along with Christianity by osmosis. But what we've seen in America is that pull to family or tradition is going away at a very, very rapid pace. People have been observing this, but there has been little statistics and evidence shown about what's really happening. There has actually been a survey just done recently. It was done by uh, two major universities, a bunch of social scientists, and also in conjunction with the Public Religion Research Institute. And the study just came out. Part of it was published in The Atlantic, and other scientific journals has been published. And here is what the findings have shown. Over the past 25 years, 40 million Americans have stopped going to church. That is 16% of our population. And in their research, this is what they say, and this is a very astounding statement, but they say that it's backed up with the research. This is the largest concentrated change in church attendance in American history. This is the largest concentrated change in church attendance in American history. It is happening before our eyes. One of the reasons they say this happens is a myriad of reasons, but one major reasons is that they say that American society is designed in this way to maximize individual accomplishments, professional and financial success. And because that is the drive of many in America, that leaves little time and energy for any community that doesn't contribute to one's own professional life or their children's goals. Is that what the church is? Is that what we're here to do? To help you self-actualize? To help in your professional goals? To help in your children's self-actualization and their goals? Maybe that's the reason so many people are leaving the church. It doesn't provide what they really want it to. And here's the thing. Like the men in the story, they know the story of Jesus. But have their eyes been opened? Have their hearts burned to what it means to personally encounter the risen Christ?
Maybe you don't get this, and maybe you've heard the story so much, you don't realize the great irony and humor of this whole story. And this is kind of what drives this narrative. The irony is, we, the reader, know that these two guys are talking to Jesus, right? And here, these two guys who are sad and disappointed are walking with the risen Christ, right? And we're kind of laughing. You're telling Jesus what's up? Like, who the heck do you think you are? Right? That's the humor of the story. And while we are laughing at this, or might think, you're these two silly guys, what Luke is trying to do, the author of this book, is trying to show us is that we can live in that same way. I went to school in Washington, D.C., and there was great things about living in D.C., the cultural diversity, for one. And the nearest movie theater to my campus was at Union Station. And going to a movie at Union Station was a cultural experience, one that I had not experienced before, especially scary movies. I didn't know movies could be an interactive experience, but with the certain cultures, they are, okay? And so here I am in a scary movie with my roommate. And... Uh, all of a sudden, you know how the, the, you know, the character walks into a scary house when they're not supposed to, and the person's there, you know, the axe murderer or whoever it is, right? And while we're watching that in the movie, we just hear lots of people in the movie theater saying things like this, girl, you are stupid. What are you doing walking in that room? And I'm like, what is going on right now? And that's something, as a white guy, I don't do in a movie theater in public settings. But it was really fun. See, that is what Theophilus, that's what Luke is doing to his friend Theophilus and to us in reading this story. See, Theophilus is who the book of Luke is written to. It's written to us as the church, too. But Luke said, I wrote this to you, Theophilus, for this reason, that you might have certainty with what has been taught to you. See, people don't see what it means to believe in the risen Christ. That Christ rose from the dead, that he ascended to heaven, that he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he intercedes for us right now. That he has ushered in a new kingdom. That the gospel, this good news, this story, is not simply believing in Jesus, not simply just our coming to faith, but it is our growth in faith. The Gospel of John says this, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. This gospel message, this good news, is both for Christians and non-Christians, that we both need to believe. Again, I'm borrowing a lot of these ideas from Tim Keller. You can see it from the beginning of the worship guide, a quote that's there. The belief in the gospel is not just the way to enter the kingdom of God is a way to address every obstacle and grow in every aspect. The gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z to the Christian life. See, we need the church. We need each other. We need the good news to constantly be said to us. 
We need someone in our lives to say to us in the church, are you crazy? You can't go in there. What are you doing, girl? We need people like that in our lives, especially in this time, a time where we are anxious, where we try to cling to answers outside of the gospel, that we need other people telling us the truth, that Christ is on his throne, that he has defeated death, that he reigns, that his kingdom has come, and it will come fully to make a new heavens and a new earth. We need people to tell us that. Well, it says that these two gentlemen are sad. If you see the Greek and the way it's formed, it could be depressed or melancholy. Saying that, they're depressed and they're melancholy because Jesus didn't turn out to the way they wanted him to. See, they wanted political salvation. They wanted redemption from Rome. They wanted to be freed from this Roman Empire that Israel would reign again as a nation. And Jesus is very harsh to them. Do you not see? That is not what this whole word of God, this whole thing pointed to. You do not see what the Messiah really had to endure, that the Messiah had to suffer for there to be redemption. They had a skewed view of what salvation really was and what the Messiah had to do. I think here in the Fox Valley, we have a skewed view of what the good life is and what Jesus is supposed to do. We value security and comfortableness so much. It's such a high commodity to us. If we are just Midwest nice, thrilled to keep our doors unlocked, if we don't see crime and problems, if we're just kind to one another, then everything will work out great in our lives. I was reminded of this a few years ago by the queen of kindness, Ellen DeGeneres, correct, right? Be kind, that's what she said after every show. Well, how did that end up for her? <laughs> As that show, if you didn't know, Ellen DeGeneres ran a daytime show anyway. It got found out that she was treating her employees rudely. There was misconduct. There was sexual misconduct. There was mistreatment. And the show was done with. I love what C.S. Lewis says about kindness. The real trouble is that kindness is a quality fatally easy to attribute to ourselves on quite inadequate grounds. Everyone feels benevolent if nothing happens to be annoying him at the moment. You know, we live in a very beautiful community. Wonderful people, kind people, gracious people, benevolent people. But behind all this Midwest nice, there is dysfunction. One of the largest places per capita in the United States of alcohol abuse. Domestic abuse that doesn't just happen in low-income families, but happens in middle and upper-class families. 
family pain where there is dysfunction, where it seems like every family has someone that they don't talk about because of drug abuse or alcohol abuse or something that was said, that there's alienation. Again, C.S. Lewis says, a world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world. It might be even more difficult to save. Enter the church, right? The symbol of niceness. Families put together, right? Places where we sing and we look like we're kind to each other and all these things that we just top it on top of the ice cream. This is the good life, right? The church is just the exemplary of what you put onto our community. And what it becomes is because a huge obstacle for many that feel like their lives are not put together. That they don't feel like they can step into a church because they might not be married or have children or they struggle with abuse. See, Jesus is saying to these two guys, you've missed the message of the gospel. If you're going to hear anything, please hear this. We are not just sufferers in need of our pain being eased. Again, we are not just sufferers in need of our pain being eased. We are sinners in need of salvation. We are dead, and the only way that we will have life is that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. That is radical transformation that doesn't happen from anything from ourselves, from being nice or kind or having good kids or playing sports or whatever it might be. It comes from a supernatural God coming into our hearts and transforming and changing us from death to life. Jesus says to these two men, you didn't go far enough. You think it was Israel being redeemed? No, it was your hearts being radically transformed. That is supernatural power. That isn't earthly or political power. That'll preach today, will it not? And people think that who I vote for or where I turn politically, that will save our nation. And Jesus said, have you even read what I say in my word? That the king of this world suffered. This king of this world was persecuted. The king of this world had no place to lay his head. And we think that financial success or political success is what it means to live the Christian life when the very son of God is the one that went to the cross. It makes sense that sometimes we lose focus as the church. 
away from this 2,000-year-old message. What do we offer up as Emmaus Road? That we're in this beautiful building with stained glass? That we have amazing children's programs? That our music isn't as loud as some other churches in town? That's why this church is so amazing, right? No. What makes us amazing is because we worship the risen Lord. That he is one to break through the deepest brokenness, the worst addictions. He doesn't simply make us feel better. He makes us alive even though we were dead. The reason we are named Emmaus Road is because we desire to be a church that both can receive and give the good news that Jesus gave these men on the road to Emmaus. I'm going to give you three concrete ways how this can be lived out, okay? Number one, we see that what Jesus does is that he opens the word to them, says Moses and the prophets. And he says, this Old Testament, these things, they are talking about me. It says it's concerning himself. This whole story of the Bible is a story that points to the redemption that God gives through Jesus Christ. Scripture is authoritative, and it points us to who Jesus really is. In a place where many people have opinions of who Jesus is and what they want Jesus to be, the place we go where we know who Jesus and the Messiah is, is the Word. Therefore, as the church, we need to open the Word on Sunday mornings as we preach both the Old Testament and the New Testament, in our groups as we look through the Word together, that we need to be reminded and seen that this whole thing points to God's redemptive story through Christ, the Gospel. This isn't just Sunday school stories that help us in a morality, that help us to live the self-actualized life. No, it is a story that tells about God's grand story of redemption through Jesus that came to us even though we were far from him and saved us. That is the story of the gospel that we need to tell over and over and over again. And it's that that we'll see transformation and change in our lives. So we should open the word on Sunday morning in groups, personally looking at what this story of redemption is through Jesus Christ. Number two, you see that Jesus walks with them and then he eats with them. Here's guys that are skewed on their view of who God is, but Jesus continues to bear with them in this their skepticism, their sadness, their mistrust, their misunderstanding. He opens the word to them and eats with them and dines with them. We need to be a place where people can come and ask their questions, that we would walk along with them, that we would open the word to them and hear their questions and answer them in a very grace-filled way 
that we would be an environment where we can invite people into our homes, that we would show hospitality. One person this last week asked me, how can I serve the church? What can I do? There's lots of ways you can serve. We can talk about serving on Sunday morning, all these ways. But I will tell you one concrete way you can all serve the church. Invite people into your home. Invite someone from church that you don't know well in your home. And you know what you should do? Invite someone from work or your neighborhood with that person you invite from church. And talk about your life. Talk about what gives you hope. It doesn't have to be awkward. Oh, here, I'm going to give you the four spiritual laws. But ask questions. Ask questions about what drives you in life? What is your value? What do you find meaning in? And share your story with them and say, I would love to tell you more about Jesus if you'd like to. Let's be hospitable. And also, let us be patient in the way that we see God open people's eyes and let their hearts burn towards him. You know, I talked about these things like music and sports and the things that make the valley. I didn't say these things to bash them. They are beautiful things, all under God's total redemption, under his creation. I've made a decision personally, and I'm not saying that you have to do it this way, that I've said that club sports in Appleton are a problem that we're driving our kids way too hard with sports. We're making them try to reach goals that they cannot meet. We're taking them away from other communities on Sunday mornings. If you go to the championship center, I'll tell you what, that parking lot is more full than the Appleton Alliance parking lot on Sunday mornings. Because that is where people's value is. Instead of me saying, oh, boo you on you, and I don't care, and you know, all bad words about club sports, I said, you know what? I'm going to be involved in it. And I'm going to also set some boundaries. We're not going to play on Sunday morning as a family. If I coach, I'm only going to coach a tournament on Saturdays. And I am going to show these children, these kids, these young girls, that there is more to life than volleyball. That volleyball will come and go. But there is something more. And when I interact with those parents and those families, they can see that Jesus is what brings value and meaning and full life to sports and activities. I don't know what that is for you in your life. But there can be redemption in the broken things in Appleton. There can be redemption about hanging out at the bar. There can be redemption about going to a music venue. There can be redemption of skateboarding. You name it. We can redeem all these things. They are beautiful things that find their full meaning and hope in Christ.
seems to me that every single wedding I do, I give them a lot of passages to choose from, actually just three passages. Two of them I like more than the other, but 1 Corinthians 13 always comes up, right? I know it. It's all, you know, someone that's not in church for a long time, you know, the love passage, right? That's the one we want to go to. So I always have to end up preaching on 1 Corinthians 13. And when I preach that message in front of people, many who do not know Jesus at all, and they think this is the most special day of their lives, and this is the most significant thing, that I can say to them, you know, you love 1 Corinthians 13. It talks about love. It talks about the way you love one another, and this is what you're going to do. You're going to love each other. And then I tell this couple, you can't love like this. There is no way you can love like this. But I tell you someone that did love like this, that was patient, that holds no wrongs against us, one that is all these things is Jesus Christ. And if you commit your life to him, it will give you the power and strength to live out what these words say. As a church, we desire to say to one another and to those around us, like the disciples at the end of this passage, it is true. The Lord has risen and he has appeared. Let's do it. Let's live in that kingdom. And as we come forward and we take the bread and the wine, let it open our eyes. Let it make our hearts ablaze to know here is the risen Lord who intercedes for us right now that strengthens us as the church to go what we're supposed to do in our mission to reach this city for him.